Hello and welcome back to the Science Behind That podcast. I am your host, Atticus Hamilton. And for all of you new listeners out there, the Science Behind That is a show where we take a deep dive into the obscure science of everyday life, into the science of everything from physics to engineering, and biology to zoology, and psychology to anatomy, we take a deep dive. So without further ado, welcome to today's episode of the Science Behind That podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to season one, episode 11 of the Science Behind That. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about vaccines and how they work, and of course, a little bit of history behind vaccines. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's jump right into today's episode. Grab yourself your cup of coffee, your morning pastry, or whatever you do in the morning to get ready for the day, and join me on this great Friday morning for the science behind that. So, first off, vaccination has been around for a very long time. Now, the term vaccination didn't really come about until mm, around the 1800s, 1700s, with the development of the first vaccine against smallpox by Edward Jenner. Now, before Edward Jenner developed the first vaccine for smallpox, um, in China, all the way back to the Ming Dynasty, I believe, they had been vaccinating people Uh, for smallpox. So, how did they do that? Well, smallpox had a cousin, and this cousin virus is still around today. It's called cowpox. It infects cattle, and it also infects people, and it's not lethal, but it causes very painful blisters. And so, in China, um, the, 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 I guess traditional physicians back then discovered that if you take a pustule, which is just a fancy word for a, a, a big pimple basically that's formed by the cowpox virus, if you break it open and take the pus on the inside and scratch it into somebody else's arm, it provides um, an immunization basically against smallpox. Now, why does that work? Um, The reason that worked is because cowpox is so similar to smallpox that to the immune system, both cowpox and smallpox look the same. So if if you vaccinate somebody for cowpox, most of the time, about 30% of the time, they will also have vaccination for, uh, for smallpox. Or if, if you vaccinate somebody for cowpox because of how similar they are, uh, 30% of the time or thereabouts, uh, they will have immunity to smallpox. And so Edward Jenner came around and he basically did the exact same thing. The only difference was he purified the pus from the uh, cowpox pustules and developed a vaccine and in fact that's where the word vaccine comes from the vax part in vaccine comes from the latin word vacca which means cow 
and that came from Edward Jenner's smallpox vaccine, which used cowpox. So, jumping ahead to the modern, the modern day, there are a lot of different ways to make vaccines, and based, depending on what organism you're vaccinating against, i.e. are you vaccinating against botulism, are you vaccinating against um, Ebola, that's going to change what your vaccine is. So for bacteria, most often times, vaccines we have for bacteria are what are called toxoid shots. And this is why we don't have vaccines for every type of bacteria out there, because we can only vaccinate against the type of bacteria that produce toxins, and those vaccines are called toxoid shots. And so what is a toxoid shot? Well, I will spare you the deep, in-depth biochemistry of what a toxoid shot is. In its most basic sense, right, a toxoid shot is a synthetic replica of a toxin that is produced by a bacteria. So, now what is the point of this? Well, the point of this is a, a toxoid vaccine is basically an inactivated toxin, uh, an inactivated replica of a toxin that a bacteria produces. So, for example, botch, botulism toxoid shots. Uh, take the botulinum bacteria toxin, or the the uh, botulinum toxin, um, and it creates what's called, uh, essentially it's called a, a, a zeismogen form, and that is basically just a form of that toxin that has a specific chemical group attached to it that makes it inactive. The key thing here is, though, that despite the fact that that toxin is inactive, it will still provide immunity, uh, and it will still provide memory. So when the immune system sees the toxoid shot and they develop antibodies to fight against the toxoid shot, if that patient is ever exposed to botulism in real life, the immune system will then have those antibodies to fight against that uh, toxin. So, now, what about vaccines for viruses? And I think the, the biggest question that everyone's going to ask is, well, coronavirus, which is not called coronavirus, it's called SARS-CoV-2. Um, so SARS-CoV-2, how are we going to develop a vaccine for that, and what would that look like? Well, there are a lot of different ways you can develop a vaccine for a virus, um, one of the ones that I'm a particular fan of are blood serum vaccines, but those are exceptionally expensive and they take a long time to make. Uh, but more than that, I mean, if everyone was working on a serum vaccine, it wouldn't take that long to make, but they're really expensive. So a lot of pharmaceutical companies do not want to invest the money into making them. They rather make, you know, off-the-shelf sellers to make as much money as humanly possible. But anyway, that's for a different that's for a different episode. So what a serum vaccine is, is basically it's a vaccine made from the antibodies of somebody who has already had 
the virus and or somebody who has an immunity to the virus. So basically, a ser in a serum vaccine, you analyze the, the antibodies produced um, that are effective against this virus, right? And you can do two things here. You can create a synthetic antigen that perfectly matches the, um, the receptor site of those antibodies. And for anyone who doesn't know, antibodies are chemicals produced by the immune system that binds to pathogens, so viruses, bacteria, and parasites, and inhibit them from doing what they do in the body. And so for a serum vaccine then, once you have the antibody, and that includes the active site of the antibody, which is the site that binds to the virus, you can create a synthetic antigen that matches that active site. And then, so when you inject that synthetic antigen into somebody, it will basically do the same thing that the virus will, um, except it's not a virus, it's a synthetic antigen. But your body will still make those antibodies that will fit the virus because they fit the custom-made synthetic antigen, if that makes sense. I hope that does. If it doesn't, shoot me an email, and I can explain it in further detail. The other way of developing serum vaccines is basically just copying the antibodies produced by um, uh, that person who has immunity. So you just copy those antibodies. Now those can't really be called vaccines though because those are more um, antibody shots um, because they don't last for a long time, right? So if somebody has coronavirus, what you can do is you can give them an antibody shot and those antibodies will bind to the virus and make it much easier for um, the immune system to ingest and or to basically eat and kill that virus. But there's no what's called memory, which is an ability of the immune system to remember the structure of that antibody so in the future they can reproduce it to target that same virus. So that's serum vaccines. Those are the two main ways of making a serum vaccine. The other way of making a vaccine is um, a live, what's called an attenuated virus vaccine. And what that is, is we'll use the flu as an example. This, the flu shot, the annual flu shot is an attenuated virus. So it's a live virus. Um, but the difference is it no longer has the capability of infecting human cells. And so what you do, or what used to be done, is um, you take the flu strain, or what you perceive to be the flu strain for that year, and you repeatedly, you repeatedly inject it into chicken egg cells, chicken embryos. And after a while, you take the viruses that replicated inside that chicken and you inject it into another chicken embryo. Why are you doing this? Well, because you are using the natural evolution of the virus um, to your advantage. So some viruses, due to genetic mutations, will be better suited to infect chicken cells and human cells and if you select for those viruses that are better suited to infect chicken cells after a while you'll get a strain of the flu that can no longer infect people but that still has its key um, antigen on the surface of that virus 
an antigen is basically the little cell receptors that alert the body, hey, I'm not, I'm not you, I'm, I'm foreign, I'm a virus. So, basically, through that method, you're taking a virus and you're attenuating it, or you're making it weaker, so it can no longer infect human cells, and then you're injecting that into the human body. And that's why the annual flu vaccine usually has around a 20 to 30% efficiency, uh, or sorry, efficacy, which, you know, is really good, really good for the flu, because a lot of times we're just shooting in the dark at what that's, this year's strain is going to be. And so you could theoretically do that with coronavirus or with SARS-CoV-2, although we haven't had much luck yet doing that. And then there's one more major type of um, viral vaccine, and that is a, uh, a basically a, an antigen vaccine. So basically, in you know a last attempt scenario, what you can do is you can take the virus, once again SARS-CoV-2. You can grind it up basically, and you, enzyme, you use enzymes to break it up, but you break it up and so you have a vaccine that's just composed of a solution of the bits and pieces of that virus. Um, and then you inject that into the patient and what that does is it's like, here, human body, you have a ton of different antigens you could theoretically create an antibody to, create an antibody to one of them and develop memory that way. And that way, um, you're giving the human body a broad spectrum of different possible antigens that it can find an antibody to. And so in the future, if um, SARS-CoV-2 mutates, depending on what antibody the human body created an antigen to, uh, sorry, depending on what antigen the human body created an antibody to during the administration of that vaccine, you may have a lower risk of mutations resulting in an inefficiency of the vaccine. But anyway, those are the basics of serum vaccines and then general viral vaccines. Uh, and of course, toxoid shots, as we discussed. If you guys want to hear more on this subject, definitely let me know at the email thesciencebt at gmail.com. I would love to answer your questions and I'd love to hear your suggestions for future episodes. So that will wrap it up for today's episode, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed. Have a happy Friday. Have a happy Thanksgiving weekend if you guys celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, for, for all my U.S. listeners, have a happy Thanksgiving week. Don't worry, I will come out with uh, a special Thanksgiving episode on uh, next Monday and next Friday. So Thank you guys again for listening. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, remember, stand up and question everything.